what can I give Him? I cannot think of a more meaningful expression of love that a parent can get on Christmas morning than a homemade gift made by their child. Now, you have to cap that off as a young child because once they're out of the house, if they're making homemade gifts for you, there's something wrong there. Maybe. Even if they have to uh, break their piggy bank and pour out their own coins and go to the dollar store and get you a tchotchke, that's the greatest thing they could ever do. What they're doing is they're giving you their heart. In my office, I have a lot of books, and uh, scattered throughout my books are little handmade cards that my children have given me through the years. And it's really beautiful to find one that I've not looked at in a few years and just see it pop out again. Brings me back, brings a tear to my eye. Christmas is an opportunity, though, for you and I to give the Lord our hearts as a child would give their hearts to their parents. When I ask you, what do you plan to give to the Lord this Christmas season? The word Advent is a Latin word that means coming. And sometimes we talk about the second coming of Christ as the second Advent, or we think of the Christmas season as Advent season. Uh, It just simply means the coming and the first coming of Christ. And so, I do believe that with the observation of the, sec- of the first coming of Christ, Advent is an opportunity to devote ourselves to the Lord. It's also a time to rekindle our love for the Christmas story. And so, over the next several weeks, I'm going to be walking through Christmas according to St. Luke and thinking through His presentation of the Christmas story, and we begin with the conception of John the Baptist and his birth. He was the forerunner of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and his purpose, his whole reason for entering into the world was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, dedicated, devoted, for people to give God their hearts. John was himself born into a devoted family, yet even then John's father, a a priest in the temple, had placed to become more devoted unto the Lord. And I think this is a challenge for all of us as we read this story that some of us may be very familiar with. We may all consider ourselves already devoted to the Lord. We may count ourselves being faithful already, but Advent is one of those seasons where I think it's good for us to joyfully renew our dedication that sometimes does wane uh, as the year goes on. I want to ask you perhaps a difficult question. When was the last time that you thanked the Lord that He saved you? To say something heartfelt from the heart saying, I love you, 
I want to give you all of my heart because of what you have done for me. It's an act of devotion, an act of consecration. This doesn't save you. It just simply says, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. I want to be fully devoted in my heart to you. So, I think this season is a good time for us to renew our devotion to the Lord, and I also am looking deeply into my own heart to see where I can renew my devotion to the Lord. So, let's look at this story, verses 5 through 25. We're going to see the conception for a barren and a devote couple. And before I do so, let me just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful that we can come here on a, in a dreary day and find truth in Your Word that can encourage us. We pray, Father, that, that our hearts would be like children, that we would get, be ready to, to give You all of our hearts. And I ask, Lord, that You would use Your Holy Spirit to, to prompt a greater degree and depth of love than we have had in the previous year. And as we enter a num- coming year, I pray that we would live lives that would be ready to, to do whatever You would ask us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 5 through 25, let me read them. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them 
and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among people. And we see a couple that uh, had the blessing of seeing a conception. They were barren for many years, devoted couple. What we see in verses 5 through 7, we see a couple who, who were really a model of devotion to the Lord as a couple. They were completely given over to the Lord. Here's a couple, an older couple, who for many years they desired to be pregnant, and they couldn't conceive even though they were devout. I see Luke giving some very encouraging descriptions of them. I see him described as a priest. And Elizabeth, if you carefully consider that she's a daughter of Aaron, this indicates that she is also a priest's daughter. To be a priest and married to a priest's daughter was incredibly noble. In fact, it was almost like a double and special distinction. Uh, it was often said in that day, if you were an excellent woman, that maybe she deserves to be married to a priest. That was kind of how people thought in those days. And of the priestly tribe of Levi, they did not have a specific allotment in the land. They're also described as living in and among the tribes. While I didn't read this verse, verse 39 later we learn that they lived in the Judean hills. They lived nearby Bethlehem. And that's an important detail because we learn that her mother was a sibling of the tribe of Levi the tribe of Judah, excuse me. Her mother was a sibling from the tribe of Judah, and this made her an older sister or possibly a cousin to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, growing up, she was a priest's daughter. She grew up in relationship with Mary and her family, and when Mary moved up to Nazareth, there was a place for Mary to come and to spend time with uh, someone that they could trust down in the hill country of Judea. Uh, Luke also describes her, them both as being righteous and upright, righteous and upright. In other words, they devoted themselves to a lifestyle that was after the pattern of the Word of God. This means they lived a very strict and moral lifestyle. In other words, they weren't nominal. They weren't Jewish in name only. They were sincere in their devotion. They were authentic. They didn't care how they would be seen by other people in the culture. Rather, they were concerned with how God thought of them. That was what was most important to them. Now, that doesn't mean that they, this means that they were sinless people, it does, however, mean that they live their lives in contrast to the culture around them. Someone has described culture as something that you are in and don't always realize that you're in it, kind of like secondhand smoke. 
You don't know that you smell like the culture, but it permeates. It's all over you. It's on your clothes. It's in the clothes you wear. It's in the pores. It represents you to others even before you know what they're like, you know as they come towards you. And a couple who is devoted to the Lord will unintentionally stand out in their culture because they won't be or smell like the people around them. They will be different. And a couple who is devoted to the Lord will intentionally, for example, organize their lives around the Word of God, around prayer, generosity, and public worship. It's significant that we are not afraid of what people will think of us so that when we go out into the world, we are more concerned with what God thinks of us than what the world thinks. We should, and I suspect in Luke's day, it was a very dark, there was a lot of pagan influence in Israel, even though there were God's people living in the land. There were people who could smell, for example, the culture. They could smell the culture around them and desired for that taste. And we also, in some ways, can smell the culture around us, and we ought to say, we don't want to smell like the culture that sexualizes genders. We should smell a culture that loves wealth more than having children. We should be able to smell that around us. We should also smell a culture that loves to pamper ourselves and give ourselves all kinds of pleasures. We should smell a culture that promotes arrogance in men and narcissism in women. When we see these things, then all of a sudden we realize that we're not a part of the culture. We're trying not to be a part of that kind of culture. We are devoting ourselves unto the Lord, not with a proud, condescending attitude, no question, but with an attitude of love that we want to give our hearts to the Lord. We want to give all of ourselves to Him. And this couple living in their day was devoted to the Lord. They organized their lives around the Word of God and prayer and worship, and they wanted to be connected to the one that they loved. This couple, though, as devoted as they were, did not exempt them from suffering. They were suffering. And this is actually what defines what true devotion is all about. They did not let their disappointment over childlessness cause them to retreat from loving God. They nobly accepted the trials that were placed before them with resignation, and they persevered in faithful service to the Lord, regardless of their circumstances. That's really what defined them and their devotion to the Lord. There's something else here that Luke does for us that describes this couple and the service in which um, Zecharias was obligated to participate in. Uh, there was an interest in God's Word, and particularly, he received a divine prophecy directed to him during prayer. Verses 8 through 17. Verse 8, we, we see him, he, he has an obligation as a priest. He is serving 
uh, before God when his division was on duty. At that time, the priesthood was so numerous and populated that they couldn't all be in the temple at the same time. The Mosaic law had commanded that the, the sons of Aaron be equipped to serve and given the opportunity to serve, so they divided the, the numbers into rotating groups that would enter into the temple at a particular season. And uh, in fact, there were limited jobs where you, would, you might have a job of preparing sacrifices. Some people might be given the job of going in and offering the incense in the holy place. That job and that role may have been drawn by lot, and so there was a, a dice rolled or something like that, and, and, and you, were, you were given that opportunity. In fact, it was very likely it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense before the Lord. And as it, the lot fell to Zechariah, he went in to fulfill his obligations, and as he was standing there burning incense just on the other side of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, he was standing there before the golden, golden altar and the incense was starting to rise, and as he was doing so, an angel appeared to him on the right side of that altar. At the time in which he was preparing his incense, all the other priests would have left the temple and it would have been absolute silence as he's preparing the sacrifice, a dead silence. And as the, the smoke would waft up through the ceiling grates and go out into the, to the courtyard, there was assembled on the outside a group of people praying and interceding for the welfare of God's people, pleading and praying that, that the Messiah would come. It's very probable that Zechariah here is not praying for his childlessness. It's very likely that he is praying for God's will, for God's people. No doubt he had prayed for a child many times through the years, but at this point, he's praying for the glory of God to be displayed. He's praying for the greater ends of God's glory. And I think there's something to be learned here, that when we pray and submit our desires to the glory of God, He may bring us answers which surpass all of our own expectations, hopes, and desires. It is possible that we lack the blessing of God upon our lives because we have neglected to pray for the glory of God, that He Himself would be magnified in all the earth no matter what might be our own personal experience in this world. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care for our own personal needs, but He has a wise plan that will bring Him glory, but also bring good for us in ways that we could hardly even imagine. I don't think it was on their timetable that they would conceive at this late date in their lives. But in the end, God recognizes their need and blesses them, and this angel comes and gives them an announcement that they're going to have a baby. They're going to have a baby who will prepare the way for the Messiah, and they're given a special name named John. 
I'm partial to this name. And you'll look at me differently once you know what it means. It means gracious gift of God. And it refers to the grace of God which was going to flow out of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Messiah would truly bring a gracious gift to all through the presence of the Holy Spirit that would be given to all of us who have trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ for our own salvation. See, the ministry of the Holy Spirit would turn back the hearts of the people towards the Word of God. The work of the Holy Spirit would prepare a people to be devoted unto the Lord. And all of this was superimposed through prophecy and a call for devotion. Now, we do have something very curious that happens in verses 18 to 25. There's a doubtful response, and there is a disciplining that occurs by the Heavenly Father. And I would like to say, if you are ever in the presence of an angel, never cast doubt upon the message. Moses himself, if you recall, cast doubt upon the message and being in the presence of the very glory of God. I think we have something that's even more reliable than angelic message. We have the Word of God. When the Word of God speaks, don't put it into doubt. Accept it and respond to it with dedication and devotion. But I realize that if Zacharias, who in his own life and in his marriage were devoted, trying their best to live honorably before the Lord, and if he had doubts, then I am sure that all of us can have doubts. And if man doesn't doubt, then they're perfect and they don't need anything. And in this case, Zechariah is disciplined for his doubt, ultimately for his own good, because he's going to get stronger on the other side of this trial that he's going to experience. But it's going to be a sign for the people and display the glory of God significantly. Being chastened by the Lord is not, not for our bad, but for our good. I think that there is a lesson here for the church as well, that when the Lord speaks through His Word, we ought not to cover it up and to go mute. We ought to be able to express it and declare it to all the world. See, when the church doubts the Word of God, it loses its voice in society. When we think that it would be better to use preferred pronouns, we lose our voice. You find your voice when you devote yourself to the Word of God and proclaim His truth in the community around you. One of the great reasons that the church has lost its effectiveness in America is because we have doubted the absolute authority of God's Word. We go fearful and we doubt the certainty of His Word. We have something that this world desperately needs, 
let's not doubt it ourselves, but respond to it so that we can declare it. Now, there is, yes, there is this, this conception that occurs. I, I guess I need to read the account so you believe it. He goes home, and they have a baby. There's, there's a baby who is conceived. And then there is this normal process of nine months, and there's time that goes by. And then there is this birth for a barren mother, but this isn't just a birth for a barren mother. This is actually a birth that's going to come for a barren people and a people who are undevoted. Verses 57, let's, let's um, well, actually, before we, we move there, the, verse 17 says this, and he, that is John, will go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The people of Israel were not prepared, just as much as we as a nation are not prepared. There is a need for this birth to come so that the People will respond, and they will devote themselves to the Lord. In verse 57 to 66, we, we see the birth account. And when we finished the book of Exodus, we left Moses, if you remember, telling the Lord that he was an unworthy partner. I know two weeks is a long time, but we looked at that two weeks ago. But in response to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, you rightly see yourself as being undevoted and incapable of being a good partner to bring Israel out of Egypt. But don't worry, I will make you to be a suitable partner. I will cause you to be fully devoted unto me. And before we leave this and go to look at the birth narrative, listen to what the angel tells Zechariah. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth, see the word will, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Next slide, please. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord for their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make them ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now, I slowed us down here to notice that it is God's work in John the Baptist to prepare many of the children of Israel to be devoted to the Lord. And the Lord will use John to prepare people to respond. God will cause a people to rejoice in the Word of God and reverence Him, and the birth of John will make a people ready and prepared. Now, there are two instructions that are given in this 
message that I think it's important for parents who will raise children to be aware of. First, they are given this strange statement that they've got to call his name John, and they must train him to be devoted to the Lord. Now, if you flip the slide back there, Seth, for us, the two bold sections are the only responsibilities that the parents are given. You've got a duty to, res- to name him after the name that's been designated, and then also to keep him on target and on task to keep him away from these things of uh, drinking wine and strong drinks so that he might be devoted fully to the Lord. Now, every parent should look at these two requirements and recognize that there are some applicability to ourselves. In order to raise a generation that will go on after us to be salt and light, it's important that we recognize, first of all, the Lord's sovereignty over our children. He can name them and make them whatever He wants. And two, We have a duty to help our children learn how to be self-controlled in order to be ready to receive the Word of God in order to be a blessing to their community around them. And so, I put this at a head, but I'm going to kind of show how some of these things work in the calling of an undevoted people. You have to have a person who is able to be devoted themselves to call others to be devoted. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 57 through 64. I've I've, I've delayed getting to the birth account, and now we're here. Uh, Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth, what did they do? They obeyed the word of the Lord by calling this baby John on the day of his circumcision. Both his name and circumcision are symbols of devotion. See, parents usually have the right to name their children, right? We don't want the government to come in and say, your child should be called this. I mean, every new parent has dreamed about using a name that they have, at least most, most know what they're going to name their child. Some days, I've, I've heard some people, well, we didn't know what to name the child, and for two weeks, the child was nameless. I've heard that happen before. But think about this, Jared and Abby. What if I were to, you know, someone were to come along and say, no, you, you, can't, you can't name your child Blair, you've got to name her Mallory. Well, it wouldn't sit right with you because you have a say in the matter. Well, see, this couple, since they were so old, they weren't expected to have any children after this one. 
This was the time to name the namesake of the Father so that the name would be given into the future and His memory would be lasting. It was incredibly unconventional. But you know what? It was a symbol of their heart for them to say to the group that gathered in that household, no, His name will be John. Why did they obey the Lord? Because they loved the Lord more, and they gave their heart to the Lord. God Himself would be a father to that child, and He would be a preacher. He would be filled with the Spirit even in the womb, and He would be devoted, calling undevoted people to the Lord. Circumcision was also a symbol of devotedness to the Lord, and I know we're not obligated as parents to perform this ancient rite upon our children anymore. We don't need to mark the body to show our devotedness to the Lord, yet we have received the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. When we had the Holy Spirit come upon us and we were baptized into relationship with Jesus Christ. I would have to say that that experience is at times no less painful. In fact, it can be even more painful for somebody to say that I am a sinner and I need a Savior because there's a lot of pride that we all carry. And circumcision of the heart is something that doesn't just stop when we suddenly realize that we need a Savior every morning we get up, we know that we need a Savior. We need to circumcise the heart daily, and it's cutting, and it's painful. We've got sin patterns that just keep hanging on, and we've got to cut them. That's painful. Our heart is proud, and the knife slices deeply. And when the Holy Spirit points out these things in our lives, we bleed, and then we have to say, yes, Lord, we love you more. I will put these things away. In both of these symbols, I see the giving of the heart, the giving of the name, the giving of the life of the child in devotedness to the Lord. When the Word of God slays us and convicts us of sin, it's painful. But if we were wise men, would we do our part? Yet, what I can, I give Him. I give Him my heart. This little baby will be calling undevoted people to respond to God's Word, but there's also a reverence for the Lord. Verse 55 to 66, I see this in the story. Verse 65, it says, and great fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all, all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then shall this child be? For the Lord, hand of the Lord was upon him. The reaction of the witnesses was fear. And that's exactly what this child was going to do when he grew up. He was going to put the fear of God in people. People watched this child grow, and they began to realize that the hand of God was upon him. 
On Wednesday night, someone mentioned in our prayer meeting how lots of people in our community are starting to recognize how fast the culture around them is changing. Even people who would not consider themselves to be devout people to God, maybe just spiritual people, are becoming sensitive to the fact that our world is rapidly changing. And I think that there's a reality that we must embrace, that we have had a cultural Christianity that has a lot of people been just, you know, taken for granted. Two or three generations of Americans have simply taken for granted the Christian influence that's in our culture. Things are not sane right now, though, are they? There is such a denial of reality going on and gaslighting and authoritarianism that's really being felt. I think that we live in a day of great opportunity, very much like the days of John the Baptist. People are looking now for others who know what time of day it is, and they're ready to listen. They're ready to respond when you say, will you come with me to church? They will respond when they hear you say that you have a confident place of where you can put your faith. There is so much destabilization going on. Now is a great time to open our mouths and tell people of Jesus Christ. But we can't do that if we've not already devoted ourselves to the Lord first. And Advent is a wonderful time to devote yourself to the Lord. And as your pastor, I, I stand in a long line of John the Baptists who are calling you to devote yourself to the Lord. This Advent season is really a good time to examine where your heart is. What is it that you love? What draws you? What have you let take priority over the Word of God? What have you let overtake a priority for prayer? generosity, and even worship with other believers. This Christmas, I want to ask you, what will you give Him? And I would encourage you to answer with the words of the song, yet what I can, I give Him. I give Him my heart. Let's pray.